1: Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week we are joined by Professor Emeritus at the U.S. Naval Academy, Craig Simons. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write in to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to @Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to this week's sponsors, HelloFresh and Rise, in the show notes we thank you for supporting our sponsors it really helps make this podcast happen please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on apple podcast spotify stitcher or wherever you get your podcast james the chaos and carnage in afghanistan that we're seeing on the television screens these days and reading about is a disaster but there are different issues in this tragedy one Joe Biden's decision to get out after 20 years in spending over a trillion dollars in America's longest war was absolutely right. That was one concurred in, actually, by Donald Trump, by Barack Obama, uh, and it was inevitable. Now, the lack of preparation in executing the withdrawal of American personnel and all Afghans who've helped us and are at risk with the Taliban takeover, that was inexcusable ineptitude that doesn't detract from the overall correct decision. And finally, the most bogus charge you're hearing now from the right and some others is that Biden lost Afghanistan. It wasn't ours to lose. Four administrations share in any culpability. Bush went in to root out bin Laden, right? And to remove the threat of al-Qaeda from there, they used uh, Afghanistan is a launching pad for 9-11. I was totally justified. But then he stayed in there. He said mission accomplished after a year and a half, but they stayed in there as he was distracted by Iraq. Obama came in and said this was going to be the good war. And then he got disillusioned. Uh, but the military and Hillary Clinton and Bob Gates said, you got to send more troops in. So he did. Uh, and then by the end, he was trying to figure out how to get him out. Trump didn't know what he was doing and finally signed a bad agreement with the Taliban to get out by May of 2021. This is what Biden inherited. This was and Joe Biden, by the way, always opposed a long term presence in the inner councils of government as a senator. Uh, this was we, we weren't going to be able to stay uh, another three months, another six months, another 10 years, another 20 years. It would not have changed anything, James. This is Afghanistan.
2: Well, first of all, I I, I agree with the first part. I disagree with the second part. He just got out. There's no elegant way to lose a war. There just isn't. And it it, it was a conscientious decision, by the way, to not bring the refugees back to the United States. And and let me tell you, they mocked Biden. If you want to blame people, blame everybody. They mocked Biden in like 2010. Okay, Obama did. Hillary did. Gates did. Petraeus did. They all mocked him when he sat in a meeting and said, we got to pull out. And and the guy was literally on the verge of tears. And this is credentialism on steroids. Every smart, educated council on foreign relations, bullshit, horse shit guy out there said, you got to stay. That fucking wall was lost 18 years ago. And, And. You know, when somebody stands up and recognizes it, well, you know, and you know what's going to be the consequences of this? Nothing. They're not going to change the way to educate people at the service academies. Nobody is going to be held accountable for shit because, as Andrew Busevich said on our show, a a, a private that loses his weapon faces greater reprimand than a general that loses a war. We have been totally let down, totally let down by overeducated, credentialed, stupid assholes. And that's just what happened, period. And people got to understand that. There's no good way to lose a war. And we lost this war a long time ago. That's my view.
1: Well, I think the, we never were going to win the war to start with, and the only thing we could hope for was some kind of a negotiated settlement, which wasn't realistic either. Uh, the military, you're right, did a terrible job in training uh, Afghan crazy. forces. They misled us. They lied to us. I, I, I love it when, you know, General Petraeus and others say, well, if we just stayed for a little bit longer, no. Uh, now, James, the only disagreement we have, I, there is no, elega- it, no elegant way to end the war. I agree. I do think no, we could have no. gone and prepared better to evacuate people. I think that could have been done. I think they were caught by surprise. Uh, maybe they shouldn't have been. But on the overall question, uh, we weren't going to have a permanent presence in Afghanistan. This is not Korea. This is not Germany. Uh, ask the right. Russians. Ask the British. Uh, it was destined to be a, uh, an unwinnable war and an unwinnable peace.
2: Well, it, it, it is a utter disaster, but the decision is, I understand it, I could be wrong. I'm just gone on information and belief to not bring these people back to the United States was Biden's. It wasn't the immigration service. It wasn't Homeland Security. It wasn't anything else. Well, what and people boy, are we talking you, about? You watch, if you watch, the, the, a lot of people that helped us over there. It, the argument is we should have gone and got all of those people out, and there's a good argument to be made for that. But the, but but once you do that, you, you're already starting where you're hearing all over OAN and Newsmax and Fox are going to bring these refugees here. I think— I think it was Biden that made the decision not to pull these people out of there. I could be wrong. I'm not saying it is yeah. is gospel, but I do know that that they mocked Biden that he wasn't you know he didn't go to a prestigious school. he didn't understand the complexities and the realities of it and actually, the person I blame least up to Biden is Trump, who just he came up with a bullshit thing where he let all these Taliban people go, who of course you know ended up. Fighting against us, but he, he, he at least he had the common sense to know that we had to get the fuck out of there, and so I I I, I think I go by descending blame, you know, starting with Bush, then Obama, then Trump, and Biden. I, I, that's my that's my view. It's a lot of there's a plenty of blame going around, and there's going to be no look back. There's going to be bullshit. And I blame. By the way, I blame the press a lot. They got sucked into this left and right. It was called good war, and no one had the heart to come up and tell people this thing is hopeless and lost and now you know of course biden does that of course it's gonna it looks sloppy it's gonna hurt his stand a little bit but you know sometimes you know what i i tell my wife we're at a party the only way to leave is to leave all right we don't need to sit around and shake hands and, and everything tell whoever the, the host is we had a good time thank you good night we should have done that shit a long time ago and, and the people that talked us into staying there were all the right people. Well, I, I, that's, I, 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 I think this is a disgrace for the United States.
1: I certainly agree we should have left. Uh, I hope Biden wasn't the one that said we're not going to bring people. People risked their lives to help us over there. It, it was an ill-fated mission. It wasn't their fault that it was an ill-fated mission. Uh, And I think we owed them something just as we did in Vietnam back in 75, which, and you know, I I, I see these people, some of the commentators, some of the politicians on television saying this is worse than Vietnam. However bad it is. I mean, I am sorry. We lost 58,000 people in Vietnam. It was the first war America lost. We were told. In 1975, that was the end of American power in the world. We were a declining asset. The Soviet Union was on the rise. The dominoes were going to spread all over Southeast Asia. You know what? It was all bullshit. It didn't happen. Soviet Union collapsed. We were dominant, and there were no there were no dominoes to fall. And Vietnam today, you know, is begging for American support against the threat of China. Shit, shit, you go. Saigon and Hanoi,
2: Hanoi are two of the great cities in the freaking world.
1: It's a still a bad
2: government. I've been there. It's a still a bad government. I, I don't, you know, I, people have bad governments everywhere. It's, but it's I'm gonna tell you, you go there, it, 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 I, I can't, I, 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 I'm talking about the entrepreneurial spirit, collegiality, food. It's just unbelievable. You're not gonna go to Kabul or Kandahar in 20 years and see that. It's not even comparable. All right, Vietnam is a successful country. Hmm. Afghanistan will Semi. never be a successful country.
1: Vietnam's a semi. Okay, I'm not going to.
2: No, I, I, a, it's I don't. Not, want to, I mean, look. They, they, the,
1: the point is, the point is, there are differences I, I, between they, the two, and there are tragedies that are unavoidable in Afghanistan. Women were given rights they didn't have before. That's going to end. That's going to end, whether and, it's next week or tomorrow, uh, next month. I don't know. Uh, there was educational uh, reform. There were some good things that happened well, in an ill-fated mission. Oh, you,
2: you know why that? You know why that? That's what they want. They could have fought for women's rights they could have fought for this if what we spent how many hundred billion dollars 20 years training the afghan army almost are you 100 shitting billion. me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah are you shitting if the real cost is going to be way high now it's the most colossal failed undertaking in the history of warfare and, and, and of course it's a shame but that's the country they want they when when i was in afghanistan I was talking to they, I was working for Ashur Ghani, who's now disgraced in the UAE. All right, and, and people were lined up, and I talked to these guys in Kandahar. And, and, and the biggest, the, the mark—I'm not kidding you, I'm not making this up—the mark of prestige in Kandahar, if you're a male, is you have a 13-year-old boy that travels around, with, and you, you enjoy him. And, and I asked God, I said, "Man, what are you?" in? he said, "Man, that's Kandahar. That's just the way it is." Well, if you think you're going to go in and change a culture that, that not only approves, that, that elevates people breaking 13-year-old boys, I got news for you. You're going to freaking lose. And and, and that shit happened in 2010. And we're sitting here. And you're right. It's, it's, the, the way they treat women is horrific. The way they stone people to death is horrific. We, we gave them a chance to change. They told us, get the fuck out of here. They're done with us. And, I, and now in, in the whole country, it, of course, it, what the Taliban's got, and it was a good article in the Times today, and I, I was told exactly the same thing. It's all about controlling these trade right, routes and make, making people pay tariffs. And also it's a giant narco state. That's I, how I, they, I'm not that's sure how that they have the their potential money. wealth. Yeah, yes, the potential wealth against them might be better than fucking Saudi Arabia when they, they get through distributed all the Heroin, where they, And they now have, you know, you watch the French Connection, you had to take it all to Marseille, the finishing plants. Well, now the Afghans are so advanced, they can, they can take the poppy, they take it out with a needle, and it's a, it's a very complex thing. I, I, I was shown how they do it. But now they can send you, they can import the actual shit right out of the country. And they're going to do it. And, and what this is about is a massive financial boom to the Taliban, of course, who are they going to give it to? They're going to give it to their friends, you know, and their friends are going to be fucking terrorists, going to be people who wish disorder. Their friends are going to be people that don't much give a shit about the United States. If that is what's happened, that's going to happen, and there's no other. There's nothing you can
1: do to stop it. Well, they, al- they also are rich in minerals, too. They don't know how to get them. Bro, oh, yeah, and the mineral. Chinese are ought to get them. And, and well, I, I think they're gonna bring in someone, most likely the Chinese. Uh, and it's gonna but again, I don't think I think it's a disaster. It was wrong. It was ill advised. No, uh, it was doomed to end the way it did. Uh worst disaster it, 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 ever. It, 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 I, I would but, 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 I would I would pit Vietnam against it. Vietnam was a bigger was a bigger deal. I I, 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 was, I think that consequently. Go ahead. I, I in terms of live loss, right? Like, so
2: we lost, I don't you know, how many people lost in Iraq and Afghanistan? One of the, the sad truths, a, a good truth, is we have fewer deaths in combat because they've gotten so good at saving people.
1: Well, that's true. We're talking cash. So if we'd over. have
2: had, we'd have had, it, but, but when you go and you ask Joe Stiglitz or anybody, what are we going to be paying for these wars 15 years from now? The cost is staggering utterly staggered. We got kids that are over there and they've been traveling carrying 110 pounds of gear in the most mountainous terrain for 13-month deployments. Their spines, their their, their skeletons are are shot. And you're going to have to take care of these people, which you better because it's the correct thing to do. And the people whose lives we've saved that if they were served in Vietnam would be dead anyway are going to be the accounting costs of this projecting forward are going to be astronomical in state. I cannot
1: begin to convey the level of this fuck up. Not to mention the mental uh, and emotional uh, problems that that people are going to have. I just will say one thing in closing. I mean, I was just, I shouldn't have been, but the chutzpah of Condoleezza Rice to write a piece today. I mean, she was one of the architects of this failed policy. Uh, And to write a piece today criticizing Biden for suggesting that the Afghan people chose the Taliban, and going on to say, "No, they didn't. No, they didn't. No, they didn't." I am sorry. She is a favorite again of the foreign policy establishment. Uh, She's their favorite uh, uh, Republican. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. But that was a despicable column.
2: The only guy that saw this coming was our friend Holbrook, and they mocked him. They made fun of him, right? They made fun of him, and and I I I, I got to tell you, Al, the 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 the, the press has not crowned, its, has not covered itself in glory here. I agree. And, and you and I know exactly what happens. They go over there, they give them a military transport, and they meet them at the F, whatever, they, and they take them in, they give them a pot and a flak jacket, and they give them a briefing. And what the shit were they do? Yep. They ought to take the, the, the Johns Hopkins School of Diplomacy and all of that shit and the, the Council on Foreign Relations and boy it right. up. That whole crowd is just nothing but a massive fucking failure, and, uh, and we're not going to have it because if we do, it's going to be a bullshit thing because we're going to say, "Oh, let's get you know, let's have General Petraeus head a commission to find out what went wrong." Yeah. Well, guess what, General Petraeus is going to find,
1: you know? You don't think uh, you'll it, say, "I, if, 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 I went so, wrong." You know,
2: we're going to get <laughs> oh shit! Oh uh, yeah, you'll know, get Richard Haass. Let's bring him in because yeah. he, you know, he's the, the expert. I mean, I, it, I, it, it, but, it, all of these people. It, it, this is a massive failure of credentialism, and we're never going to get any accounting for this. I promise you, I will get some washed over bullshit, but that's just what people are going to get. And, and I, 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 I hate to say that. I really do. And, and I, I know that what Biden did, you know, it was terrible, but at least he said, you know, just get out. I think we will. Well, we've got to stay. We've got to pull these people out. We've got to do this. They always have a fucking excuse of why you can't uh, do something.
1: I agree with your analysis. I, I'm more confident we'll get an accounting. There will be an equivalent of David Halberstam's Best and the Brightest. Uh, I don't know. Someone is there there. There are people like, uh, I, I would just suggest David Marinus and others uh, who can do that because uh, uh, an accounting accounting is, is necessary. It's a tragedy. So,
2: so the Best and the Brightest is literally one of the great books ever. Yeah. Right, and it was how the hubris and arrogance of the the, the credential class in America. And you know what we learned from the best and the brightest? Fucking nothing, nothing. But did the same thing, the same goddamn thing. And I'm telling you this, I'm not going on information brief. I'm I'm talking about. They mocked Biden. They mocked
1: him. Bob Gates said he's been the wrong. Literally uh, to Bob tears. Gates said he's been wrong about everything over forty years. I would like to pit right. mano a mano, Joe Biden's record against Bob right. Gates' record. Uh, I'll take Biden. Uh, uh, and I'll and I'll give the points. Yes. I'll give the points too. Yeah. But the one thing he was right about was
2: one massive thing. And they literally, they mocked him in the White House. Mocked him. It, it brought the guy to tears. And and he never forgot that. And, and boy, when you – let me tell you, it takes a fucking courage to go against the credential class because they, they spout their degrees and their experience and their, their appointments and, you know, and all of that shit. And let me tell you, we have been failed constantly by our credential class in this country. And it's time that we recognize it and it's time that they, we start thinking about how we train people. We start thinking about. I, 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 we'll talk to Craig about it, but I, you know, of course, I can't. We can't much blame the Navy for this. <laughs> right, sure they had something to do with it. You Admiral Mullen was a good. Go Admiral ahead. Mullen was not. He, he wasn't the greatest in the world either.
1: there were there were worse. Okay, uh, we'll, There's we'll a lot. We'll come back to this next
0: week. Hey,
1: James, it's a daunting task to introduce our guest, uh, Craig Simons, the great naval scholar at the Naval Academy and Naval War College, the author of dozens of books, many on World War II, but also on the Civil War Admirals and also on the Battle of Gettysburg. He has a 24-part series on the Pacific War, which everyone ought to look at, audio and video. Every year, we celebrate the anniversary of D-Day and then the victory in Europe. Not as much attention is given to the war in the Pacific which ended in August, was just as momentous and it shaped the next three quarters of a century. Craig, we are really honored to have you with us. And let me start off by talking about the Pacific. In early 1942, the Allied focus was on Europe. Much of the American Navy was wiped out at Pearl Harbor. The Japanese appeared uh, dominant in the Pacific. Yet, yeah, tell us about the extraordinary and critical recovery that the American Navy made that year.
0: Well, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor was brilliantly executed by them. They managed to remain secret and uh, stealth, uh, maintaining radio silence all the way across Pacific and executing a wonderful attack. But it took place at just the moment, which a few had recognized, but by no means everyone, when the battleship era was in fact ending. So that by focusing on those battleships, sinking four of them, heavily damaging four others, they did not, in fact, seriously attrit American naval capabilities in the Pacific. But there were still only three aircraft carriers under American control, so the Japanese were still very much in charge of things in the first months of 1942, and it was a precarious moment, both for the Navy and the nation. And then
1: there was Midway and Coral Sea. Right,
0: And the two of them should be paired, just as you have done. I think that's fair. What the Coral Sea showed us was uh, what I have just expressed, and that is that the carrier had become the queen of naval battle. Uh, It was kind of a draw, tactically, each side losing uh, important forces. Uh, But it was a strategic victory for the United States in that The Japanese decided to turn around and go back and recall their invasion convoy for Port Moresby on the south coast of New Guinea. And that turned out to be the furthest extent of the Japanese conquest. And then, as you mentioned, Midway was the real turning point, not in terms of the war, but in terms of the momentum in the war. It took away the Japanese ability to call the shots as to where the war would then be fought and gave that momentum to the United States.
1: You know, I have written about us breaking the Japanese code. You know, you point out we didn't really break the code, but we got important elements that played a key role, Carl C., Midway, and the killing of Admiral Yamamoto. Those code breakers in Hawaii really
0: were a big deal. They were a big deal. And I'm glad you brought up the fact that uh, that we did not break it completely. I think there's a tendency for people who hear that, oh, we broke the Japanese code, to assume that we were reading their mail. They would send out a report and we would read it almost in real time. That is not the way it worked. They sent out hundreds, thousands of electronic messages from which we were able to gather bits and pieces that allowed us to make informed guesses about what was likely to happen. So the credit to the codebreakers really goes not just in that they were electronically clever, but they were also culturally wise to figure out what those bits and pieces meant. You know,
1: there were such larger-than-life figures that you uh, have written about so eloquently, Admirals Chester Nimitz and Bull Halsey, who had to deal not just with the Japanese, but also the egomaniacal Douglas (laughs) MacArthur.
0: Your words, not mine, Um, but fair enough. (laughs) Few would disagree. I do think it's true that Chester Nimitz deserves a lot of credit. He made a lot of bold decisions in the Coral Sea at Midway and elsewhere, which we may get to later, but I don't think he gets enough credit for being the calm, steady hand on the helm through all the difficulties of dealing with Douglas MacArthur, whom you mentioned, Ernest J. King, his boss, the Chief of Naval Operations in Washington, and volatile characters like Bill Halsey as well, uh, and howling Mad Smith of the Marine Corps. So being the eye at the center of the storm uh, made it possible for Nimitz to be the guiding hand in this whole war.
1: Well, James. So Craig,
2: this is my, this is haunted me and I can't wait to ask you this. So they show up at Port Moresby, the Japanese fleet does. And all of a sudden we have aircraft carriers there. How could they not fucking know that we knew something? I mean, (laughs) in the Pacific,
0: we just happened to have some people right there when they decided they were going to do this. Yeah, and that's not the only occasion. Al mentioned the shooting down of Yamamoto. I mean, how come we had a squadron of airplane exactly in the place where he was scheduled to show up? How come the Japanese couldn't figure this out? And I think the reason is there's a hubris in, in being clever. And that we're as guilty of that as anybody. We think, oh, aren't we clever to have figured out this code that nobody could possibly break? We're so smart, and also, they are not so smart. And so the assumption is, well, they got lucky, or it was coincidence, or it just happened to be. But you're right. The Japanese should have said, this is not coincidental. They know something. Uh, Yeah, and
2: then even the morning of June the 4th, and Nagumo is waiting for his scout planes and he has this fierce resistance at, at Midway. I mean, we're watching planes and shit like that. I mean, he didn't know that we knew by that point.
0: I mean, he's still wondering if there's carriers out there. Well, you're uh, right. I mean, first of all, Midway put up a pretty good defense, although it's with older airplanes and the Japanese right, Zeros right. handled them pretty well. But he should have figured something was up when all the land-based airplanes at Midway arrived over his carrier force. Now, the reason what he concluded, and not entirely incorrectly, was that he had been spotted by long-range scout aircraft, which was true. But uh, you're right, a, a, a person less inclined to assume, oh, those Americans couldn't possibly figure this out, should have known sooner than he did that we knew they were coming.
2: So, so there, there's this thing. If you can get it online, it's it called Nagumo's Dilemma, where, where they show you what was going on in Nagumo's mind about you know the bombing torpedo bombs and you know the, the the different things that they they had to do. I, I, I have this theory, and you can certainly welcome to disagree with it. I think Yamamoto is freaking overrated. He went to Harvard. He was a bright guy. As you've pointed out numerous times, he had these impossibly complex schemes that were almost impossible to deal with. He made a a a, a big choice at Midway that turned out to be a disaster, and I I I, I think the guy's overrated. I, I, and I I, and I think we prop him up because he's our idea of what a canny, smart, Harvard-educated Japanese naval officer should be. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm not going to say anything about Harvard-educated, smart people, but I will say this about Yamamoto. He fought a war against the United States that he did not think was a good idea. But he also fought a war against the Japanese Army and the Army High Command and the Army General Staff. And I suspect quite strongly that one of the reasons he was determined to bring about a showdown with the American fleet near Midway, was that he would personally be present, as he was, this is the only battle in the Pacific where he himself was at sea, that he would win that battle, come back to Tokyo, and have leverage against the Japanese army to say, okay, look, this is where we are, it's time to negotiate, we got to stop this thing. Now, I have no proof of any of that, but I think his cleverness was limited by the political environment in which he worked.
2: Okay, so you anticipated my next question. Because most Americans can't quite understand this because we have a different military command structure. I don't totally get it, so you help me. The relationship between the Imperial Japanese Navy in the army was, was not what we think of when we think of the, the you know, the army chief of staff and the, in the CNO, it's, it, it's a different thing. And give us about 90 seconds to help an American understand the way that Japanese military command work, because it's quite different. Okay. And that, I appreciate it. That's a great it, question. Let me see with. if
0: I can do this in 90 seconds. That's quite a challenge. All right. Think of the All relationship right. between the Japanese army and the Japanese Navy. Being on the same side, fighting the same enemy, as somewhat similar to the relationship between Britain and the United States and the Soviet Union, on the same side, fighting the same enemy, but suspicious of one another, not trusting each other as far as you can throw them. So yes, they all wanted to defeat their common foe, but they didn't trust each other. They didn't like each other. They would cut each other off at the knees if they could. So it's more like an alliance than a joint Army-Navy combination. Does that help?
2: Yeah, it helps. It, it helps a lot. And I think it helps our, our listeners who, who are interested in this just understand that military command and control structures around the world are, are not always modeled after the United States. And boy, they, you know, there's a whole theory of thought that when the Army lost that, that battle, and that, that Zhukov beat them in Mongolia in like 1939, that that really gave the Navy an upper hand don't know if it's true, but that's a credible view. Before I turn it over to Al, we were kind of conditioned when I was, you know, we're all the same generation, but that the emperor wasn't a bad guy. He was, a, you know, I, I don't think he was a very good guy at all. Is there, where, do you, where do you stand on Hirohito and all of this?
0: Well, Hirohito was in a tiny little box. You know, he was born into an environment where no one could look him in the face. He was a deity. People had to turn away because the bright sun of his face would blind others. And he lived his whole life in that environment. I think, and it's, it's significant, I think, that at the last meeting in 1945, when he said we must save the lives of our people, and end this war, that the army and navy didn't want to do it. So, in a way, he's the hero of the Japanese capitulation, and he was a prisoner of Japanese culture, and particularly that army-navy dominance over the Japanese government that existed from the mid-1930s onward. So, whether he's a good guy or a bad guy, he's a prisoner in a box, and behaved probably as well as any person in that environment could be expected to behave.
2: All right, you can vest me, Albert. I got more, much more to come, Craig. <laughs>
0: okay, <laughs>
1: yeah, I do too. You know, Craig, I would just say as an aside, when you, you know, to James's question about why didn't they realize uh, when we were at uh, when we spotted them at Carl Sea or Midway or Yamamoto, one reason was because they didn't read the Chicago Tribune <laughs> in uh, Tokyo, <laughs> which had published uh, after Midway that we had broken part of the Japanese code. So thank God there were no trip readers in Tokyo. Uh, but uh, let me just turned to 1945. The tide had turned, not only in Europe, but also in the Pacific, yet the Japanese were fiercely resistant. First at Iwo Jima, where the Marines fought the Imperial Army. The battle, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it lasted a month after that iconic picture of the American flag raised at Mount Suribachi. That, we sort of thought that was the end of the battle. It wasn't. And then the bloodiest battle of the war, two and a half months later at, Ak- at, at Okinawa. Those were really those were really fierce combatants uh, we were facing.
0: Yes, they were. And what it demonstrated was the Japanese culture that it uh, it is the inherent and uh, uh, existential responsibility of every Japanese citizen to resist to the very bitter end. Uh, that culture was so powerful that the idea of surrender was unimaginable to them. The word surrender does not appear anywhere in any Japanese army or navy manuals or because it just is impossible. You fight to the death and then you're dead, but you do not, under any circumstances, surrender. This, of course, is what led to the notion that, well, we'll have to invade their country, we'll have to fight them on the beaches and in the cities and street by street and kill not only all their soldiers but all their families. Their children were being issued sharpened bamboo sticks so they could fight to the death. The inability of most Americans to get inside that mindset is I think explains why there's so much resistance to the idea that the atomic bomb was necessary in the first place. Because the Japanese simply were not going to surrender. They fought to the last man on most of those Pacific islands. 90,000 were killed, not casualties, killed on Okinawa. A thousand were taken alive. So. And all the kamikazes, and the kamikazes I, I, were giving up their lives striking at American ships. Three hundred American ships struck by kamikazes off Okinawa.
1: Well, you have brought up the big one, Harry Truman's decision to drop the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I confess to a personal bias. My dad was in the Pacific, and the alternative, as you said. Uh, probably was an invasion of the mainland with all hands involved with unbelievable casualties. Yet critics or revisionists uh, still claim Japanese might have been close to surrendering, even though it's not in their military manuals, especially after the Russians entered the war two days after Hiroshima. Anything to that? There's
0: something to that. Um, one of the things I often told my students jokingly was that if you have a multiple-choice exam about historical causation, the answer is always all of the above. What caused mm-hmm. the Japanese to surrender? Was it the atomic bomb? Yes. Was it the Soviet invasion? Yes. Was it three and a half years of bloody warfare from island to island, the sinking of their transport ships by American submarines, the bombing of Japanese cities by the B-29s? Yes. Yes it was all of the above. Uh, No one of those alone, I suspect, would have been sufficient to overcome that cultural bias we were talking about a minute ago, that surrender is incomprehensible. And the only person who could demand it was the emperor personally. Now, about the bomb. Um, I think one of the things that has led latter-day historians and analysts to think about is that Since 1945, a thing has emerged that there are two kinds of warfare. There's conventional war and there's atomic war. But in 1945, there was just war. The atomic bomb was big, it was different, it was huge, it was terrifying, but it was a bomb. And like other bombs, uh, it could be employed, the thought at the time was, to achieve a strategic objective. And in fact, it's possible that absent that bomb, it would have been more difficult to achieve that strategic objective. Let me make one final point about this, and I don't mean to hog the microphone, but I think this
2: Please, please do. Hog, hog the shit out of it, man.
0: Al, Al says that he's glad that his father wasn't, and others were not compelled to invade Kyushu and Honshu and fight these operations all the way into and through Tokyo. And it probably saved upwards of a quarter of a million American lives. It probably also saved upwards of 50 million Japanese lives, because if that culture of every Japanese citizen fighting to the death had been enforced, that invasion would have resulted in far more casualties to the Japanese than the two atomic bombs did combined. So it's possible that the employment of the atomic bombs, yes, saved American lives, but very likely saved many more Japanese lives.
1: Well, I think the other thing that you know so well, Craig, is that uh, Truman, uh, after Nagasaki uh, and Hiroshima, he he refused MacArthur's request to drop another atomic bomb in Chinese cities uh, uh, five years later. Uh, And he really, uh, I think it was his correct decision, moral decision then, that the atomic bomb was not a normal
0: bomb. It was not a normal procedure. And 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 thank God it's never been used since. Well, that, that view, as I mentioned, appeared between 1945 and 1950. By 1950, it was clear that atomic warfare was a different thing, a new thing, an apocalyptic thing. Uh, I think that view was less clear in 1945. You're absolutely right about Truman's decision not to let... Douglas MacArthur expand the war into China he didn't want him not only didn't want him to drop atomic bombs he didn't want him to do anything with the Chinese Uh, MacArthur wanted to great line unleash Chiang Kai-shek as if you know you can the mental uh, image of unleashing Chiang Kai-shek against the mainland of China Uh, but that would have expanded the war expanded the objective changed the war entirely so Truman was correct on both counts there. I, I will just tell one
1: quick story and then turn it over to James. who has got a lot of questions. I was with a group of largely right-wingers in Colorado maybe 25 years ago, and they were saying what we need is someone like Douglas MacArthur. And in, in our group was uh, John Glenn, Colonel John Glenn. And someone said, what did you think of MacArthur? And Glenn said, I'm just so glad Truman fired his ass. Uh-huh. So in any event, that's my favorite MacArthur story. Go ahead, James. Uh, so Craig,
2: I'm I like destined to love the Navy because I was born at Fort Benning on October the 25th, 1944. Oh my God! Which of course was in the Lady Gulf, the biggest naval battle. Yeah, in Iraq, that's which right. Which I still can't. I can't master it. It's, I understand most everything about Midway, but Lady Gulf. When you start looking at all the maneuvers and hopefully chasing people all over the place, it, it it's a difficult. Uh, I, is that a difficult battle for you to teach to to the academy students?
0: It is, but it's a great one to teach because it has so many lessons to absorb. Keeping your eye on the ball, knowing what the broader objective is, not not being drawn off as somebody like Halsey could be by the glittering object on the horizon. It, it's a great uh, it's a great case study.
2: Yeah, and also. I think the first kamikaze attack was on the twenty fifth of October, nineteen
0: forty four. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, you, but I've read that somewhere.
2: Yeah. I wasn't eat that. I I, I I was just fresh out of the room, so they can't blame that. So right. there the are two things that that, and in, in this goes right to you. I think two underrated things in military history is number one, the role that the army played in the Pacific. All right, you're, you're a right? naval historian. I'm a former marine there's this culture in in the naval service that the army basically didn't exist in the Pacific which I I think the army fought honorably in the Pacific but there's also a Civil War culture that you can really address to that it was how Grant Sherman you know the Sheridan Thomas and and you wrote a book and, and got the title I think from inspiration from the great LSU historian T. Harry Williams who wrote a book called Lincoln and His Generals? And you wrote a, a a highly regarded book called Lincoln and His Admirals. And I think you would argue that Farragut was is, is the equal of the Grants. And the Shermans, and the Sheridans, in terms of the role and the significance he played in the Civil War. Oh, so well, there's a lot to deal talk with. About, there. about Admiral Farragut. Okay, yeah, that's I, I good. knew it would be.
0: <laughs> Let me start by giving a be. plug to a book that I hope you'll read, James. You're absolutely right about the okay. Army in the Pacific. The Marines have better PR than the Army. We go ahead. And a lot of people think the Marines fought the war in the Pacific by themselves, which is not true. The uh, Army played a major role in the Pacific, particularly right. under MacArthur's command. And what I will recommend to you is a book by my friend John McManus called Fire and Fortitude about right. the Army in the Pacific. It's a fabulous read, and it will fill all those gaps that many people have about the Pacific War and the Army's role in it. Now, as for Farragut, I think Farragut was the single most important and the best example of an admiral in the Civil War who's who's as close to Grant as you can get, but the Civil War was a land war. It was a continental struggle on land, and the Navy was peripheral. What I hope my book did was show how Lincoln dealt with the admirals, many of them self-important individuals, as admirals tend to be, uh, as a a brilliant, clever manager of men, as well as a manager of war. But it would be hard for me to argue that Farragut was Grant's equivalent. I think he was the best and most important naval admiral in that conflict, but Grant's the man. Right, right,
2: all right. Right. i have not, i have not, what I'm, I'm saying is the role of the Navy in Farragut, I underappreciate. What he did in Mobile Bay was like, was remarkable. And that was pretty significant. You know, that sort of led to, I think the most significant point of the Civil War, this is just me, was when Sherman marched into Atlanta. That secured the election of 1864. That, yeah. that, 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 that's when the war, the war was won on September the 1st, 1864. I firmly believe that. I firmly now, believe that.
0: I, I think that is mostly true. I would say Lincoln's reelection is what determined the outcome of that war. And the fall of Atlanta is what helped determine Lincoln's reelection. But so did Mobile Bay, to go back to your original point. Yeah, and you're yeah, right, right, Atlanta yeah, that, And Mobile Bay that, that, contributed to Lincoln's reelection and his reelection is what assured that the North would win that war.
2: Right. And I'll give a little bit of credit because I'm in a Shenandoah Valley right now, about twenty minutes from, from Cedar oh, Creek, and I gotta give Phil Sheridan a little credit. Okay. <laughs> in eighteen sixty-four. But but at, at, at any rate, uh we we go back uh to to where we are. So if was there ever what was the most perilous point for the United States in the Pacific War? Was there ever a point That something could have happened where we would have had to negotiate a settlement for Japan, or we would have just reverted back and eventually our production would have
0: crushed them. Well, I don't know about negotiation. That was, of course, the Japanese objective all along. They never expected to defeat the United States. What they expected was that uh, the Americans would figure out how hard this war was, how costly it was going to be, and weary of it and call it quits, as has happened, of course, in American military history. Uh, it did not like happen yesterday. Here. Uh, so the perilous point were the entire, in my view, the entire first six months of that war, from the attack on Pearl Harbor up to the Battle of Midway. Uh, that was the, the perilous moment because... Had we lost the Battle of Midway, that would have endangered the Germany-first Allied Grand Strategy, because Americans would have insisted that some of those assets in the Atlantic be moved to the Pacific to shore up our collapsing possessions there. That would have weakened and perhaps lengthened the European War. Maybe D-Day is delayed until 1945, maybe in that time... Hitler develops uh, better V two rockets. I mean, you can make all sorts of maybes out of that. But I think that whole first six months was extraordinarily perilous. Albert, well,
1: uh, listen. You have been. We really had high expectations today for Craig, uh, for you, Craig, and you have so exceeded them. We could go on for hours, uh, and I know you're busy. But I, I let me ask you, how would you assess today's Navy?
0: Ah, great question. Um, I would say this: that if you took today's United States Navy and pitted it against all the other nav- navies in the world, from China and Russia and France and Britain and every other country that exists, all on one side, bet everything you've got on the U.S. Navy. Is that a good answer? Yes, That's, that is a great yes, answer,
1: and it's very, very encouraging. I just wish if you know, I just wish we could. Uh, I hope we fight no wars. If we fight wars, maybe we're better off fighting them on sea.
2: We had Admiral, uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name, but I'm sure he's a friend of yours. Stravitus. yeah, And he completely agrees with yeah. you that right now, movement whacks everybody's ass. Right. He is uncertain about 2034.
0: It's good to be uncertain about the future because it right. makes t- uh, makes us take seriously the responsibility we have to keep that Navy where it is. I'm not entirely convinced that building more nuclear-powered aircraft carriers is the way to go, but that's a conversation Jim and I have had before. Um, I-, I do think that being concerned, that worrying is a good thing because it keeps us on our toes. I, well, I, I, I would I say, uh, you know,
1: Go ahead, James. I, would, no, 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 I, I was going to say in the, in the in the in the midst of uh, of watching that wonderful twenty four part series that you did on world on the war in the Pacific. Uh, I did read uh, his novel Twenty Thirty Four, which is a great novel. I'm sure you, uh, you would agree, Greg. Yeah. Uh, but it has been such a pleasure to oh, have man. you today. We have learned so much, and I think James and I agree. We could go on for hours. Not but forever. again, thank you. Thank you You're so You're very much.
0: welcome. Let's do it again sometime.
1: After,
2: after Williams, you've done more to educate me on history than any other human being in the world.
0: All right. Great talking to you guys. Thank you.
1: Hey, now we want to tell you about a delicious meal service that's been polling better than ever in our kitchens. Hello, Fresh. You get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. So skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. And thanks to HelloFresh, eating healthier has never been easier. HelloFresh offers 50 menus and market items to choose from every week, from vegetarian meals and calorie-smart choices to extra-special gourmet options. There's something for everyone to enjoy with recipes designed and tested by professional chefs, and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. HelloFresh also gives you the flexibility you need to easily customize your orders on the app within minutes, easily change your delivery day, food preferences, and plan size, or skip a week whenever you need to. Your whole family will love it, and HelloFresh's family-friendly menu is a big win for back-to-school season. With easy, delicious recipes for drama-free dinners, you need to try it, right, James? You know, the thing about this HelloFresh, you know exactly what you're
2: getting. You know exactly not just the nutritional content. For a, a guy like me, and I'm sure a lot of people like this, we don't like to overindulge in sodium. They take care of that for you. And when I tell you this stuff, it, it, this stuff is good, don't think of Tucker Carlson's mother in Swanson's TV dinner here. The, the, you know, this might be the most improved product in the world. From what I grew up knowing as a TV dinner to what HelloFresh brings to your front door. So it, this is, and I've used this product any number of times. And it, it, it's not just good. It's damn good.
1: It is. You do. you James. You're right. You eat better with HelloFresh today. You go to HelloFresh.com slash War Room 14 and use code War Room 14. It's all one word for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. For America's number one meal kit, remember, go to hellofresh.com warroom14 and use code warroom14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. We also include the link in our show notes. All right, James, uh, a segment we love, uh, the great questions uh, from our listeners Hopefully uh, some good answers. Gary in Olympia, Washington. This is a good question. He said, we live in the home of the Evergreen State College and a hotbed of activism from far left progressives. So bad here that this is the, um, uh, the defund movement managed to get our local food cop to join the boycott of Israeli products, which in this case was three products that most of the Jews, myself included, have stopped going there. But I am one who believes in a two-state solution in Israel and and Palestine. I really hate the settlement situation, and I really don't agree that any criticism of Israel is tantamount to anti-Semitism. Plus, most Orthodox Jews voted for Trump. So, question is, what should Tony Blinken and Joe Biden do to move forward in the Middle East and Israel? First of all, this should read
2: what you send us because your question is right on target and, and you know this whole thing i i you know of course the settlements have been a disaster and you know there's a saying and it's true you can't unring a bell and once they rang the bell just like us getting into afghanistan you well, we're here and you can't do anything about it i, I agree it, it's a totally disastrous thing and you're right the only solution to this and, and i, I, I God forgot it's not going to happen anytime soon. It almost happened in the late 90s, is that you have to negotiate a two-state solution and you have to deal with the settlements during that negotiation. There's just no other way to do it going forward. And I love Israel. I, I believe it ought to exist. The demographics do not favor it. And I, I, I just hope that one day somebody reads your communication to us and bases foreign policy on that. I really do.
1: I concur uh, 100%. I also sadly concur that it ain't going to happen anytime soon, anytime in the foreseeable future. Uh, and that'll be bad uh, for everybody, uh, including the Israelis. Um, James Bob in Montclair, New Jersey, says, Given a large number of potential charges against former President Trump, is it possible that one conviction of a crime can prevent him from running for president? No, Bob, it can't. There is nothing in the Constitution about what is required, the qualifications to run for president, that mentions a felony uh, indictment even. Uh, You have to be 35 years of age, you have to be born uh, in the United States, and you have to be a resident. Uh, But you can run uh, as a criminal, as a crook. Uh, I guess he did it once before, though not officially. Uh, I think it would probably have a political implication, but there's nothing to prevent uh, someone running for president uh, who's been convicted of a felony.
2: Right. This is a nitpicking thing, but I think if you were convicted on the impeachment charge, you can't run. Well, that's, that's true. Or, 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 or James for treason. Right. Uh, but it's, it would be, you know, it would be unique, but it, it could happen that he could run and win from jail, given how nutty his supporters are.
1: Right.
2: <laughs> oh, right. I wouldn't discount that possibility.
1: Huh. Well, good. Right. Uh, a good point in a, in a good civics lesson, by the way, Al. It is. Uh, carlton and let me boy i hope i get this right because i've actually been there Menominee falls wisconsin and uh carlton asked with ron kind who's his congressman i believe announcing his retirement here in wisconsin and the gop looking to pick up six seven seats in the south through redistricting what in the world can democrats do to maintain house control Well, first of all, of all the states I know of,
2: Wisconsin has the most difficult place names to pronounce. You know, they have the wild counties around Milwaukee, of which I can't pronounce any of them, but they they, they certainly, I think they, I would love for somebody to do a study of this. I think Wisconsin has some of the most difficult place names to pronounce of any state in the United States. That's just a theory of mine. Challenge for us. A challenge for us, but I can't pronounce my own name. Uh, so you know, it, it, it's just the more I think about twenty twenty two, the worse I feel. And, and you know, I, I, you know, we 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 need to catch a win. Let's see what happens. I, although I'm getting a little more optimistic about Virginia, uh, I think Biden's taking a hit. I think the combination of this Delta variant with the obvious, you know, having to tell American people we, we lost the war, which he had to do, uh, is, is concerning. And the behavior of, somebody, of some House Democrats is very, very concerning. And I would just point to what Benjamin Franklin said, we we hang together or we hang separately. And right now, I think we're on the road to hanging separately. And I hate to say this, but I hope our, our viewers spying up people and say, look, hey, we all got to give a little bit along the way here, but I I, I don't want to think of the ramifications of having a terrible 2022, which, by the way, is a very, very, very real possibility.
1: I would add two things. First, um, Democrats have given away too much on redistricting. Uh, I believe there ought to be nonpartisan redistricting commissions. Because I believe basically voters should select politicians. Politicians should not select their voters. And I'm not for taking politics out of everything, but I am for that. It's not going to happen now. And what's happened is in states like uh, uh, North Carolina and Texas and Florida, uh, they gerrymander uh, outrageously. And Democrats in places like California and Virginia, what have they done? They have appointed nonpartisan boards. I'm for that. But, you know, you got to play with an equal playing field. They are unilaterally disarming. That's the first point I make. Second is, I think it's really critical that Democrats have success in Congress. They pass these two big measures that are there, and the voting rights suppression, uh, anti-suppression bill. If they do that, they've got a better shot. Completely agree. One sense,
2: you're 100% doomed. Another sense, you're 50% doomed. So if you go and they say, look, if you do nothing, you're going to die in the next month. If you do this, hey, you got a chance. That's just the way you are. That's just good news, bad news. But you have no chance if you can't govern. I mean, we saw what happened in 1994. We lost a rule on on the crime bill. It it just collapsed overnight. And the
1: health care bill. But it was a, actually it was a crime bill we lost a rule no 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 but you also lost the health care bill separately right right yeah. right right yeah. right but but that that
2: losing that rule and and, and and if you don't you know thank God we like got the, the budget passed which turned out to be you know Bob Kerry thank God but I'm just telling you, you, you it, it's difficult you know it's impossible without governing it's difficult when you govern, but I
1: would take the difficult over the impossible any day of the week. Yeah, me too. Um, James uh, Frank in Broward County says, he you notes know, it's just politically impossible to even have a debate on guns. Uh, so he asked, how about a tax and a yearly fee on gun ownership? It can be done state by state. Also, make bullets very expensive for certain guns. You know, Pat Moynihan wanted to slap a tax on bullets, which was a good idea. If people want to shoot Bambi and birds, charge them less than someone who wants to kill people. You know, I don't think anything works. Whatever you do, that gun lobby and their followers, uh, and they have great intensity. Uh, they get they get uh, involved, and I am just terribly pessimistic that even most. What should be easy, common-sense solutions uh, are going to be possible right now in guns. I hate to say that because I think it is there's a, a, a tragic need for it. By the way, James, I, I want to turn to you, but Frank also says, I love Magic Spoon. We are ordering it often. Thank you, guys. All right, Frank, Broward County, great Fort Lauderdale, great, uh, uh, Broward
2: County has a, a, a lot more interesting things than most people realize. They, 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 I would refer you Chris Rock has this hilarious riff on, on bullets. But if you make bullets more expensive. The problem is there's over 300 million guns in existence in the United States right now. I can't tell you. There are probably 10 billion bullets. So if let, let's just say, uh, and I know it's an interesting thing and in, we've said that, let's just suppose we impose a, a 300% tax on the sale of bullets. All you're going to do is make the bullets that are already in existence more valuable. It, 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 it's, it's a fun and practical thing. You know, Chris Rock claims it would, it would promote marksmanship because you would be sure you hit. I mean, it, it, it's a funny thing, but the tragedy of us in guns is we're hopelessly overrun with both guns and bullets right now. And there's not much legislatively, I think, that can do it. I hope I'm wrong, and some of our readers can correct me, but it's a pretty depressing situation.
1: Sure is one massacre after another, and it just doesn't seem to resonate much. That That, that is sad. Tracy in Mar Vista, California. She wants to ask us both can we tackle any of the big problems, climate change, income inequality, racism, uh, police reform, uh, more educational and health care needs, without raising taxes and reforming the tax code? And how can we do that? Well, you know, actually, uh, Paul Krugman has a really good piece. There's a
2: lot that's going on in the climate right now that we got to realize. And, and, and the biggest thing is the, the dramatic drop in cost of these renewables, uh, solar and wind. It, it it this is taking place, and I'm I, I, more than willing to blame President Obama for uh, playing a role in, in in a debacle in Afghanistan. But I got to be more than willing to praise him in a 2009 stimulus where they they really invested in these renewables. I think that's turned out to be one of the really better investments. And I, I just have this feeling that we're going, to the extent that we're going to mitigate this, and we're not going to solve it, we're going to mitigate this through technology. Now, whether it comes on fast enough, I I, I don't know, but there's some exciting shit just happening in renewables as we speak. And I, I, I just hope they accelerate it. I really do. And But... And, and I, I, I think that, that climate mitigation is a great economic, great, great economic booster. I don't think we should look at this, what it costs. cost. And we, you talk about the, the need for infrastructure. I can tell you the need for, for, for mitigation and infrastructure in, in places like South Louisiana, but there's a lot of other places like that, don't get me wrong. Uh, hello, Broward County, are you listening? Uh, Miami Beach, are you listening? You know, New York City, are you listening? Jersey Shore, are you listening? You know, there, there is real, real progress we can make. And in, in, in some of it, I think, can be economically advantageous to the country. I really do. And by the way, the leading state that produces more wind energy than any other state is Texas. And if you look at the, the, the share of the Texas GDP that's dependent on all industry, I guarantee you it has declined significantly over the last twenty years.
1: Yeah, I agree on climate, but I think overall, at some point, we at least should and have to raise taxes. Uh, we can't have we can't meet all these unmet needs and just totally put it on the credit card. I mean, I'm not a big believer that you gotta have balanced budgets and in difficult times or even in good times. But but you know we have to pay For some of it. And the reality is, James, we are not, we're not only not an overtaxed country, if anything, compared to other major industrial countries, we are an undertaxed country, and we are an unfairly taxed country. And uh, I'm not optimistic that a lot's going to happen on the revenue front this year, but it should. And I encourage everybody out there, keep your eye on the K Street lobbyists, because that's where the big money is uh, when it comes to taxes. So... Uh, it ought to be done easy to figure out how it's just uh, uh difficult to figure out whether
2: so i I, I want to go to this question just, first of all it's it's the right thing to do because everybody admits you know it's one of these things where you got any inequality is a goddamn problem right yeah, and, yeah. and and wealth stratification is a huge problem but they they had i think it was like Davos, and they were having a, a thing on income inequality but of course. <coughs> people do it it says we can talk about income inequality but we can't talk about taxes and a Dutch economist said to talk about income inequality and not talk about taxes is like to talk about fire you know suppressing fires and not talk about water right if you take that off the table then you're not having a serious conversation
1: right
2: I mean the, the one thing you do is not only do you raise revenue that can be redirected to people that have it you Also, it, it is the quickest, most efficient way to deal with this gut-wrenching, awful, immoral, sinful inequality that we have in this country.
1: No question. Uh, I just hope that someday it'll happen. James, a final question is from Mark in Sebastopol, California. Uh, you know, they're up there with Wisconsin with sometimes and hard to pronounce names. But Mark, Mark this is good. I'd like to hear what each of you have as your biggest worry for the nation's future. I never thought I would say this. My biggest worry is that we can hold the really free democratic system that we have. My biggest worry is the fear of authoritarianism. I never thought I'd believe that. Uh, I, you know, you look at places in Eastern Europe and you say, you know, that's not American. I don't think it'll happen, but I, but I worry about it. I really do worry about it.
2: You know, if I think about this, and, and Jamie Dimon famously said that no one has ever gone broke on America, I don't worry about the next 20 years. I worry about the next five years. Mm-hmm. I, I, my deep, profound worry is that we have a, a older generation that is trying to cling to some relic of an idea that they have of what America used to be, of which we're never going to go back to. But until the actual tables work their due, this is going to be a very, very, very precarious thing for the United States. I I, I am much less worried long term. I am gut-wrenchingly worried over a, a shorter time frame.
1: Well, and if that occurs, I think that uh, gets back to my to my worry. But uh, in any event, let's uh, let's you know you know. But it but it is right. Remember, there've always been bad times before. A Brit wrote a a great political science book in 1888 on why America doesn't elect great men presidents. This was uh, 25 years, 23 years after Lincoln, and then in the next 60 years, we proceeded to elect Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman and. Dwight Eisenhower. So um, you know, we um, we're resilient. We come back. Keep those. Well, we had some clinkers, but we but but we also we also had some great ones. I, I think that the, the, the resilience of the country and
2: the, the innovation that we have is, is second to none. I just worry about the short term selfishness of people that just can't get get over the fact that
1: this country is never going to be 1957 again. Right, right, I do too. All right, listen, keep those keep those questions and those emails and letters coming because this is, you really are provocative. You make us think, and uh, I hope we're answering them uh, to your satisfaction. Hey, this episode is brought to you by Rise, a science-based app to improve sleep and your daily energy. Now, nothing's more important than a good night's rest. It's not normal to feel tired all day. That means you're carrying sleep debt. Limiting your energy peaks and making your dips less productive. And when you combine great mattress technology or your favorite bed with an app designed to maximize your rest, you can take on the world. Have you ever had trouble getting the rest you need, James? Kid, are you kidding me? And I'm going to tell you the,
2: the single most determinative thing on how I feel during the daytime is how well I sleep at night. And this gives you a tool. This gives you an advantage. And the difference between getting seven and a half hours sleep and six hours sleep is is all the difference in the world. You might say, well, it's just an hour and a half. No, no, no. You go exponentially higher when when you do something like that. And and this product is gonna really help you. And and if you wanna feel good today, then you got to sleep at night. I, when I actually woke up this morning, I got a little more sleep than I thought, and I'm, I'm on fire for this podcast. And the reason I'm I on fire, and the reason I'm on fire, is I actually slept last night. And this, and this is this this thing helps. This this gives you this really gives you up a, a, a upper hand in, in your fight against or something. And I, most people well, like me, that I guess that they're, they're kind of always agitated, and you know, get up and. They, they want to face a day without enough sleep and the, not enough sleep will, will make you really bad facing the day you want every tool that you can have and this is a good this is a really good one
1: It is a really good one if it can uh, generate uh, an arouse cajun uh, they that's the answer that's And it. the rise act we've been it is we've been waking up ready to take on the day you know like us you can become a morning person. All without ditching your phone, buying supplements, a mattress, or a weighted blanket. Rise uses a scientific, fact-based approach to help you get the rest you need with cutting-edge sleep research. Rise works by pulling historical data from your phone to tell you your sleep needs and tracks how much sleep you still owe your body. Then it shows you your daily energy schedule and shows you techniques to pay it back so you can make the most of your day. It helps me go to bed when my energy drops, which it does more now as I get older, and get started on my work when I'm at my peak. Every morning, Rise tells you how long you'll be groggy, when your peak focus times will be, and when to start winding down for better sleep and more energy. You know, Rise helps you realize your potential with real results, real productivity, real performance, and real well-being. Go to risescience.com slash warrum and download the Rise app today to try it free for seven days. Most Rise users feel the benefits in just five days. So try it today to learn more about your sleep and energy levels, plus feel better, all for free during the trial. Whether you want to become a morning person, be less exhausted during the day, or improve your productivity and daily energy, Rise is the power behind your next best day. That's risescience.com warroom to try the Rise app free for seven days. you know, James, I, I got to start finding new outrage subjects, but our sphincter favorites just keep giving and giving. Ted Cruz criticized CNN reporter and Kabul, Clarissa Ward for cheerleading, he said, for the Taliban. I don't know, Ms. Ward, but I've watched a number of her reports this week. She's very good. She's fair and she's tough. Cruz, who I doubt has seen many, if any, of Ward's reports, is lying. She's also courageous in a dangerous situation. Now, we all know, as CNN pointed out, how Ted reacts when the going gets tough, like the freezing storm in his hometown of Houston last winter. He and his wife headed for Cancun. We also know that unlike Clarissa Ward, if Ted Cruz would have been in Kabul this past week when the Taliban stormed in, we know what he would have done, gotten on the first flight to Bali. Okay, it's my turn for the outrage. It is. Uh,
2: this is an easy one. This is an easy one. Right. Uh, a, a man that you may not have heard of, but I have, called Cardinal Raymond Leo Burke. Unfortunately, has COVID. is on a ventilator in Wisconsin. I, I hope and pray that Cardinal Burke is fine, because I want to continue kicking the living shit out of this horrible human being. Why do I say he's a horrible human being? First of all, he's a cardinal. He's a prince of the church. He rails against social distancing. He says that vaccines of microchips, have microchips in him, all right? And he is ferociously anti-gay. I would ask that the listeners of this show just put in their computer Cardinal Burke, Kappa Magna. And when you see the images, I have no idea, but it makes you wonder how this guy can really rail against gay people I, I, I defy anyone to look at look at that set of pictures and say that's something adding up here dude <laughs> and, and the guy's made a a, a, a lifetime he like wanted to deny people communion he's made a lifetime I think in, in opposition to the fundamental teachings of Catholicism and he is richly deserved dishonor
1: well I hope I I agree with you. I hope and pray he survives uh, so you can, uh, as you say, kick the shit out of him more. (laughs) Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our sponsors, HelloFresh and Rise. We really thank you for supporting them when you do. It helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.